Like many things, when I get awareness, I first go into denial. So it's like coming up for air, this realization that I can't stop drinking and then submerge back down into rationalization. I'm sure I could stop drinking if I wanted. I'm going to drink a little bit less. I am so healthy. I'll just do wines with no sulfites. And, (laughs) you know... What I can tell you is that I fought the knowledge and I flew away. I flew away from California, I got on a plane, and when I got back to Boston, where I'm from, I did something that I've never done, which is I gave myself permission to go on a completely improvised journey with myself. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Mercy Bell. Mercy's the co-founder and creative director of Take Care. And she's a startup advisor and an experienced sales professional. And Mercy is joining me today in another one of our conversations we're having this month in May 2021. Uh, Conversations on this show about mental health and well-being and wellness in sales. We start today with Mercy sharing her story of her recovery and how her alcohol consumption was connected to her work and sales and how she broke the cycle and started on the road to recovery and wellness. And it's a path that has led Mercy and a partner to create a new venture dedicated to wellness and mental well-being. It's called Take Care, where the A in care is the number four. And the goal of Take Care is to start conversations about wellness, recovery, and very importantly, resilience. And to that end, they are hosting a month-long event, online event. Uh, it's a 30-day-long audio experience. You get to hear powerful conversations about wellness and mental health. And as I mentioned on our episode earlier this month, a new study has found that only 40% of sellers feel comfortable that they can safely talk about their mental health at work. So another part of Mercy's goal with Take Care is to have companies be in a position to actively encourage employees to explore their wellness, their recovery, and resilience. So all the details on how you can register to participate in this unique Take Care experience, you'll hear in our conversation, and they'll also be on the Sales Enablement website. So before we get to Mercy, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Mercy Bell, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm so glad to be here. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, especially uh, maybe perhaps during this month of May, which is uh, we're, we're having a number of conversations about mental health in sales as part of Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, yeah, we're going to talk about your story, but also some work you're doing in this area that I think would be very beneficial for sellers too. So um, but tell us a bit about you. I mean, people didn't hear our first conversation, uh, maybe about a year ago on the program. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, my name is Mercy Bell and, uh, it's so funny Mercy when, I, when I, I know. So there's <laughs> yeah. an amazing indie rock country musician named Mercy Bell. Shout out to Mercy Bell. So I am Mercy Lee Bell. Um, and I, think that like when I when I consider my story now, I, I probably go back to leaving California um, after nine years in the Valley and spending mm-hmm. a lot of time in tech and in sales. I sort of came back to the East Coast and had this like reinvention, you know, nearly a decade in software, um, in an individual contributor role, 
I found myself, you know, back on the East Coast thinking about, you know, what my priorities were professionally and personally. And it's really drawn me to wellness and to mental health, um, which I think is just so aligned with the sales profession in the first place. It's really hard to talk about performance and not talk about how we're doing. Well, but yeah, but we've we've kept that in the dark for so long, right? We've kept that bifurcation as, as just show up, do your work. I don't really want to know how you're doing. It's been the general... The general schema, I would say, for 100 years. I think so, too. Although I would also say that the work hard, play hard, um, the happy hours, they all sort of point at, you know, non-verbally, but they point at there's some level of stress, anxiety. And um, I would go so far as to say pain that we sort of power through, especially in professions that have high dopamine. Um, You know, like there's so much is based on how we do or how we perform. Um, And when I moved back from the West Coast, I definitely experienced this... um, it was like a deep breath that I had never taken because I had gone from an undergraduate cold calling in the university to raise money for the alumni. Uh, So I was in 2008 during the Wall Street cash, I was cold calling Lehman Brothers employees who had just lost their job, asking them to renew their gift for $250,000. I mean, these are kinds of these amazing uh, dopamine producing, adrenaline surging Mm -hmm. activities. And yet at the exact same time, um, I'm starting to build up the sense that who I am is what I do and what I produce. I start to think right. of myself almost like a machine. I'm as good as the output. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, did you also at the same time feel like there was sort of a contradiction between how you were approaching it and who you thought you were? I mean, I, I've something I've fought against in my entire career is that you know, there's this conception of what a salesperson is. And this certainly was emphasized on how I was trained. And I just remember in my first sales training class, my first job, big company, uh, we got sent away for two weeks of this training class. And I remember after like the first couple of days just going, I'm not sure I can do this. This is, you know, the way they want you to behave and act. That's just not me. It's so, it's such a great question. You know, my entire career in sales started in fundraising, which is a type of sale, but I had no formal training when I got into the profession. All I had was my experience as a cold caller and a fundraiser for a university. And my experience of sales through that lens was it was all about connection. It was Mm -hmm. about drawing people who were angry or skeptical back into their own memories of the school. We had to Mm -hmm. get them into a state of, um, of memory. You know, what I remember is hearing someone's voice uh, filled with tension and anger, um, ready to deflect or hang up, and me finding the right question truly from curiosity, like, what was right. your favorite memory at the school? You know, what do you remember? What dorm did you live in? Finding these ways to create a sensation mm-hmm. of, of, of true relationship. So my experience of sales was like, this was the ultimate act of maybe not love, but of almost of camaraderie. Being on the phone and making cold calls was about developing a true human connection. And I would have these like almost miraculous, I mean, within a 15 minute call, I could go from someone's enemy, they're shouting expletives, they have all these reasons why, you know, I shouldn't have called them to like almost blinking back tears. You could hear it on the phone as they started to remember where they used to live on campus. If they were an older individual, remembering what it felt like to be young on the rugby field. I mean, drawing them back into these highlights of their life. So when I went into software, I said, oh, I'm just going to do this again, but now at the forefront of a technology or at the mm-hmm. forefront of something really exciting. And I drew right. on all those experiences from fundraising. And though, I mean, so <laughs> two things. One is, since I went to the school that you were doing the fundraising for, uh, <laughs> is... 
can't imagine anything that I would get teary-eyed about in my experience there. Uh, so it's, I'm not amused. I'm just interested that there are people that felt such a close connection. Imagine when you're 90 and it's okay. been a while so since you're thinking like older, like even older than me. Okay, great. Oh, you're uh, not old, Andy. Come on. Yes. <laughs> and um, I mean, my problem is, yeah, remembering half the stuff we did, at least certainly the first two years of college. Um, but then as you as you took that experience where you're having this this emphasis on connection and you move into the tech world or it becomes much more transactional in the way that you're trained and the way you're coached and so on. How, how did that then feel for you? So what a unique experience I had joining a, at the time, a three-person company, mm-hmm. like classic, like located in what felt like a, you know, it was like a real estate office on univer- right off of right. University Ave in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't know any business jargon and I had no understanding of training and there were no resources to train me, all I could do is watch the CEO. All I could do is inherit that enthusiasm and then use the people and interpersonal skills that I had. And my ability to close was purely based on that relationship that I was creating with prospects. There was no sense of, um, you know, evaluating for budget. It was bringing Mm -hmm. them to that enthusiasm level where like, we just found a budget together. And Mm -hmm. I don't recommend this for the enterprise sale. And I did have to learn absolutely all the acronyms and all the approaches and all the mutual plan creation. But like at the heart of it, in those early days, the evangelist sale, I could do that purely on my skills as a, as a human being. On the flip side, because my relationship to sales wasn't very scientific, I took it incredibly personally. Every Mm. win was like a covenant between me and that person. We were going to do it. I was going to be the integration and solutions engineer. I was going to make sure they were successful. And that kind of works in the beginning. But over time, that level of pressure to close, the level of pressure to make the customer successful it hit this tipping point where it was no longer healthy for me. Because like if a loss to me and a deal wasn't just a mm-hmm. learning opportunity, but it felt like an actual, um, it impacted my sense of self. And you felt when someone said no, you felt someone was saying no to you personally, not to the, the product. Or here's a great, exactly. It, not only was it personal me, but I would invest, I would overly invest my time and energy in accounts that if I had looked at them logically or rationally, would have seen it might have been a low probability close. Mm-hmm. But because I was so wrapped up in the person and wanting them to succeed and saw how their technology could further their business and them, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was almost a bit of misguided optimism too, that technology was perfect, that the software was always going to work. Right, <laughs> you right. know, and we all know how SaaS goes. Like there's a lot of... um we kind of have to be realistic. And I also think a bit removed. While we do care about customers and clients, um, we also, we recognize constraints with our technologies, with the services we provide and our prospects. They're just people. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes these deals don't close. That's right. me talking to my former self. I wish I could tell her, <laughs> take it easy well, and don't fall asleep in the office. You know, that's what I would do. Stay up all night, right. working on my computer, wake up at my desk sometimes. Yeah, I mean, Adam Grant in his book, Give and Take, talks about givers and takers and matchers, right? These three personality types. and But there's really two types of givers, right? There's sort of the altruistic giver, which it sounds sort of like you were, which is you don't know where you draw that line, right? I mean, you give, but it's okay to give with an agenda, the agenda being 
I'm only going to succeed if I make you successful, but there is a limit. Yeah. And he's found that, that on the scale of things, he's found that, you know, the people who succeed the most, you know, at the bottom are givers, this altruistic giver, but at the top are the givers with an agenda, with the, the limit. Um, finding that balance is hard, especially when you're young. It, it's so hard, and it, it really does mirror some of the energy management and the well-being practices, like the giving all the time without boundaries, without limits, and without like mm-hmm. a clear sense of where we're going. The mm-hmm. translation for that in my life when it comes to wellness is like, I will go and go and go until there is nothing left. You know, and the same thing that I get rewarded for, this is the part that mm-hmm. still gets me. So for all the listeners out there, like <laughs> I, explain to me how it is that all the drive and, ambitious and, and ambition and motivation will get me to an outcome that I want, like more often than not. Yet mm-hmm. that exact same quality that helps me achieve things is the exact same thing that has been the reason I burn out, get exhausted, or have some sort of like health, mental or emotional difficulty, sometimes physical, well, right? Right. So, it's hard. We're in the society where hustle and grind is somewhat rewarded, and yet it seems like a fast track to, for me, burnout. Right. Well, I think it is for a lot of people. I think it's, it's underestimated, the percentage of people, certainly in our profession in sales, that are experiencing this. I mean, there was some recent data that the people at Uncrushed are doing that uh, about the time we recorded this, it was starting, the data was starting to roll out that you know, 75% of people in sales self-reporting feeling stressed or highly stressed. And you know, that's, that, that's antithetical to performance, right? I mean, it's not, yes, pressure helps to some degree, but when you're feeling highly stressed, your ability to, to function at high levels or at the level you need to just is compromised. And I think, I mean, the question, I guess, is, is so you are feeling this and and this burnout is, is sort of during this time you were having problems with alcohol, right? Absolutely. And I want to stress something that's so important. And I think this could be true for many people's story around alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, I am of the variety of drinker where it was likely not obvious to everyone that I had a problem. Because on right. the outside looking in, I i mean, my performance was stellar as a sales mm-hmm. professional. Um, I had all the things, right? An apartment and a job. I think I looked pretty good. I ate incredibly healthy. You know, at the time I had blonde hair, not that this matters, but like I, I was glowing. I was skydiving. I was traveling. I was journaling. I was getting my yoga right. teacher certification. But behind that, Um, internally, the way I drank was to keep myself in equilibrium. It was to keep myself awake. It was to keep myself feeling close enough to people that I could be social, but far enough from them that like when I got scared or uncomfortable, um, I just felt like I, I don't know, I I felt less scared and uncomfortable. And I always share this example of, um, you know, I'll never forget going to disrupt uh, so the TechCrunch conference, and I just remember right. three or four days of just being on my feet. You know, the conference energy, it's go, go, go. There's so many events, yep. you're meeting with clients, you're going to the other booths, you're making these friends with all these other you know <laughs> vendors who are exhausted. And I remember wearing these heels, which were fabulous. And um, I also remember how 
how much they hurt at the end of those four days. My feet were Mm. just blistered, you know, bleeding behind the Band-Aid. Like just when the conference was over, it was time for me to go home. But by the end of those four days, I was so acclimated to the go, go, go to the Jack Walker booth or, or, or Johnny Walker booth, you know, like the alcohol booth in the yeah, middle of the there? conference, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I was so in it that when I left that Disrupt conference, and by the way, it doesn't matter that it was a Disrupt. Any tech conference can sure. looks about like this. Sure. When I left, someone came up to me and said, do you want to get on the party bus? And sure enough, the conference had this unbelievable alcohol-sponsored trolley car. Look, I mean, to the nines and like top shelf liquor, there were lights throughout it, beautiful leather interior, all types of wonderful professionals drinking and laughing to celebrate the end of the conference. And Andy, the reason I knew I had a problem with alcohol wasn't that I got on that bus and everything went crazy. It's that when the man said to me, exhausted, wearing these heels that I could barely keep on my feet, four days Mm -hmm. in, barely any sleep, when he said, do you want to get on the bus? I said inside myself, no. And then I felt almost like disembodied, watched myself say yes. And I walked that bus, got on that trolley, that party bus, and I took it all around the city until 3 a.m. Like every other tech professional who got on those buses. And I said to myself, I knew deep down I wanted to go home and rest and take off my shoes. And yet I found myself on this bus. And that was the first time I, you know, conceded to my innermost self. I must have some level of powerlessness around drinking Mm -hmm. because I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. Similar to when someone gives me a bag of gummy bears after the fifth (laughs) one, I'm probably done, but I can't stop. And that's how I describe addiction. For some of us, it'll kill us. And for some of us, it's things that are just annoying. Like our addiction to social media for many people is just annoying. For some, it can cause, you know, suicidal depression and all that stuff. So I don't know if that story is worth keeping in, but I always share that it doesn't have sure. to look like people going to rehab to stop drinking. It can simply be the, this doesn't work for me anymore, professionally, personally, emotionally. And so what did you do at that point? What changed? Like, like many things, when I get awareness, I first go into denial. So it's like coming up for air, this realization that I can't stop drinking and then submerge back down into rationalization. I'm sure mm-hmm. I could stop drinking if I wanted. I'm going to drink a little bit less. Mm-hmm. I am so healthy. I'll just do wines with no sulfites. And <laughs> <laughs> only, you bio, know, only biodynamic wines, please. You know. <laughs> yeah. So. What I can tell you is that I fought the knowledge and I flew away. I flew away from California. I got on a plane. And when I got back to, um, to Boston, where I'm from, I did something that I've never done, which is I gave myself permission to go on a, a completely improvised journey with myself. I decided to go to therapy. You know, I thought about this idea of working with a coach. I also thought about, um, you know, really deepening my yoga and meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And I thought about all these things that kind of had no destination in mind, but were just me exploring what wellness might mean. And it took me another Mm -hmm. year to stop drinking. But in that improvised, self-guided journey, I came up with enough aha moments that, wow, I only like myself when I do well. That Mm -hmm. if I'm honest, even though I act like an extrovert, I'm incredibly afraid of people, their opinions Mm -hmm. of me. Many of us share that trait, yes. And it can fuel an amazing sale. Let's just be super Mm -hmm. clear about this. Mm -hmm. All of those traits, all of those traits 
were incredible advantages sometimes in my sales process because right. I would outwork anyone. I would mm. outgive anyone. And I would, um, and because I drank, I had energy that sometimes could go later into the night in my twenties. I could work a little bit later. Like there's that whole energy that all of those kind of character and personality, um, traits, there were huge benefits for some time. Like it worked until it didn't is what I often tell mm-hmm. people. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. so was there, you said you go through this journey, but in the midst of the journey, you stopped drinking. So was there this moment where I was just like, yeah, that was it. Yeah. I've been really inspired by, um, a few, a few people in my life have been talking about the importance of friends and family and mm-hmm. I would say what happened is over the course of about three months, I had all these, I mean, they weren't interventions. No one was telling me to stop drinking, but I'd have these little moments with people who loved me where they'd reflect something. Like mm-hmm. I was once sitting at a bar and I had a big glass of beer and my friend walked in, this was on the island of Martha's Vineyard, super small. My friend walked in and he just sort of looked at me. I think I was scowling, looking kind of down. And he looked at the giant glass and he said so offhandedly, like just truly an observation from curiosity. He said, you don't want that. And Mm. when I looked at him and I looked at that glass, I knew he was right. You know, that was the last time I ever drank. And in fact, I hadn't touched the beer yet when he walked in. Mm -hmm. So that was the last time I ordered a drink. And it was something about the way he said it. It was something about the way my mom said, honey, I feel like you got two roads ahead. One's going down a dark path, but I'm going to love you either way. Mm -hmm. The complete acceptance of people who loved me, but their reflections of like, this probably isn't you. Right. And, And I don't have advice for anyone dealing with someone. I mean, I don't have any advice. It's horrible to watch someone you love clearly hurting, especially with a substance involved. But I would say that the most gentle reflections from the people in my life did help me see for myself that I was ready to put down the drink. It's a great story. I mean, so when you were in the midst of selling and, you know, on that party bus, I mean, did it? Did it feel like it was a, drinking was a way of belonging? Oh, certainly. I I I, I try mean, to look at yeah. <laughs> I mean, first of all, a woman in tech sales, a woman of color in tech sales. I mean, was that a part of it? Well, Andy, it's so interesting. It was a part of it, but not perhaps how you think. Mm -hmm. I was the first sales hire at this startup where I spent four years. I set the culture. The standard of our sales team was black woman in her 20s. By the time our sales team had grown, it was like, it felt like there was a moment where it was majority women, incredibly diverse. Like Mm -hmm. I never had a sensation in the company I worked with that I didn't belong. But what I did find is that what made it easy to bond with new team members to get, it's mm-hmm. almost like a fast track to belonging, right? It's it's right. superficial and it's not that real, but kind of right. crying with each other over beers or vodka late at night about, you know, your families and what you've been through. And there's a lot of bonding that comes through alcohol. So in a way, when we'd have all this growth, it was an amazing way to get to know people quickly. In mm-hmm. hindsight, I see how a lot of that actually bypassed deep connection. 
Because right. let's be honest, if we're blasted, we're not really, really connecting with Pretty each connected. other. Right. And right. now that I don't drink, I can actually go out at night and see these people, sometimes with glazed expressions, they're talking at each other, not even with each other. It might mm-hmm. feel like it, but mm-hmm. they're not, you know, we lose a little bit of presence when we, at least I'll speak for myself. When I drink, I don't show up the same way. And if I don't show up the same way as I do in the other hours, I'm not really showing up. Yeah, well, I think the I think the analogy to to yeah the level of connection you establish with someone when you've been drinking and you're trying to talk is analogous to the level of connection you get through social media. Oh, such a good yes, that's the metaphor, and it still feels real until you ca- until you compare it to the other version, right? <laughs> right. So you've taken this personal interest in wellness and recovery and so on. And it's now becoming part of what you're doing um, yeah. as your career. So tell us a little bit about this event that you're organizing uh, called sure. Take Care and and that particular part of, of your journey. Sure. Well, I first have to credit coming on your podcast about a year ago um, for giving me the bug around podcasts to begin with. Um, oh, okay. You know, in my you know, past life consulting, I found that I found a lot of joy from audio. Being on Mm -hmm. one side of the microphone as an interviewer has been really fun for this project, but getting to be interviewed was incredibly cathartic for me. This this interview included. There's a catharsis to telling our stories in an Mm -hmm. audio-focused format. Um, So I want to thank you for having me on again and for having me on that first time because it made two things incredibly clear. Yeah, no, this is so cool. Um, The first thing it made clear is that there's an intimacy and there's an honesty that happens in audio. I don't know why exactly, Mm. but I know it because when I listen to someone's voice without seeing them, I actually feel closer. It's almost perhaps because of Zoom. You know, when someone calls me on the phone, that's friends and family only. Video call, mm-hmm. I can give that to a stranger, but that phone right. call is is close. Yeah, no, so I agree. I felt like it was really important to think about when we, we talk about wellness and sharing our stories, to look at audio um, as a place where we don't have to have an agenda. Love mm-hmm. your clubhouse, but lots of agenda floating through there, lots mm-hmm. of um, lots of pointed destinations people are trying to drive us towards in some of, some of those right. rooms. And I right. was really interested in trying to create some community and space that was more autonomous, where people could come and go, but there was no signposts leading people places or to certain opinions, just kind of letting people tell their story, stories through audio. So Take mm-hmm. Care is a 30-day um, virtual wellness event. I guess we could call it that. It's more like an experience. It's a choose your own adventure online. Um, We've placed all of these audio stories on a variety of topics in wellness, grief and loss, uh, recovery, uh, resilience, chronic illness, how we deal with transition. Um, It's kind of like, say it again. Performance. Performance. You know, habits and routines, how we think about mm. our identity and how we belong. Um, it's it's sort of like, for me, growing up with Chicken Soup for the Soul, my dream was always to create an anthology of stories at some point in my life. Mm-hmm. And this project, which I've taken on with an amazing co-founder, Alyssa May Hart, also uses her middle name, um, has mm-hmm. been just like our love letter to podcasts as a format and to anthologies that don't try to get you anywhere. 
-hmm. mean, it's just meant to be a lot of content for people to engage with on their own time. So the doors open for this virtual event on May 24th. That's Mm -hmm. a Monday. And it closes exactly 30 days later. So on June 23rd, doors are going to close. And the idea is, is that we're giving people all this freedom to explore the topics they care about. The speakers we have are from a variety of backgrounds. Um, But the idea is just to give everyone that space that I truly felt I had in my sobriety journey. Mm -hmm. Um, So much room. In fact, it's funny, we chose, you know, for me, it's like four years is what I gave myself to get (laughs) my marbles back to find my purpose. (laughs) So we're going to do that four weeks for this event. So much time for people to figure out what is parenthood for me? Can I connect to this fertility story, gender identity, like everything that makes us who we are is wellness. It's not looking good. It's not feeling good. It's not green juice. It's not small pores. It's not looking like, you know, all of these corporate ideals, Mm -hmm. even high performance, Andy, I would argue high performance or um, exceeding is still part of that corporate um, conversation of what's good for the company. Maybe for me, what would be the best is to have the worst quarter of my life where I get my life back on track and I come back that next quarter ready to go. You know, who's to say? Well, I, yeah, I think, and I agree. I mean, I, I am so tired and I, I'm trying not to contribute to this <laughs> as someone who puts a lot of content out, but I'm trying not to contribute to this idea of the top performer, right? There's this mythical top performer, top producer, great salesperson. And, and I think what we lose and have lost, and I, this, is, this is relatively recent, uh, you know, in terms of 10, 15 years, I believe, that's become so emphasized, is that what happened to being good, right? Is, is, so I want salespeople just, I want to be good at what they do. I mean, when you used to say when someone was good, you used to think, oh, they're good. They're average or above average, right? Now good is, mm, you're just good at what you do. You're not the best. And I think this is, has a huge impact on performance because you have managers saying, well, look, what we're doing, especially now, is, is we have these tools. You know, I work for, you know, for a company that owns this podcast that produces these tools, but in the wrong hands – when they're used, instead of coaching somebody individually to become the best version of themselves, they're used in a way to say, look, why aren't you like, why aren't you like Mercy, right? She's the best. Why aren't you selling like Mercy? And here's what Mercy says. And, and it's like, well, we've lost the context. The context is we all operate in our own sphere. We all operate individually. You know, if there's... 5 million salespeople in the world, and they're not talking to one of 7 billion people on this earth. You know, as we do the numbers, you know, one and a X trillion number of permutations of conversations that'd be unique that take place. Yet, there's been this increasing emphasis. How do we put people into a mold? And that's so counterproductive. If you're a manager, you don't want to put somebody in a mold. You want somebody to be the best version of themselves. If you're the individual you want to be the best version of yourselves. Don't fit the mold. So, yeah, this high performance, I didn't mean to phrase it that way because I'm very, as you can tell, very sensitive to it because I think it's it's just hugely destructive um, of productivity. 
But I like what you said. You said something around like it's it's good within the realm of your good, right? Like mm-hmm. high performing in the realm of high performing for me and high performing under my definition. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the realities of we need to hit our numbers to like, yes. I, like, And also wanting to perform at a high level is amazing. But I love what you're sharing around like contextualizing it. Can we contextualize the good and the great within an individual definition too? Because mm-hmm. I, when people would say, you know, mercy... I heard you're really into wellness. If I hadn't eaten the perfect meal that day, exercised, meditated, I would say, no, I'm not really in the wellness game. And what I've found is that if wellness is a journey, in the same way sales and the profession, even the mastery is a journey, I'm actually quite fine wherever I am because I'm on it. Mm-hmm. I am doing the best I can today. And I Mm -hmm. used to think that's a complacent statement. Oh, but you could be doing better. You could be doing this and that. And I actually do believe today I'm doing the best I can with what I've got going on. And so learning to release the perfectionism, the irony, of course, is that what's happened, success beyond what I thought was possible. In seven weeks, my co-founder and I have put on an event that are putting on an event with Mm -hmm. more than 87 contributors. And Mm -hmm. that isn't because we got it perfectly right. Right. Oh, no. And it and it definitely isn't because we're perfectly well. Let me tell you, I'm burning out, friends. Mm-hmm. Anyone want to volunteer to help? Uh, mm-hmm. But I will say <laughs> that it came from an incredible amount of self-acceptance. If I had had it my way, I would have never launched the website. It isn't perfect. In fact, I probably wouldn't have put on the event for another six years until it was perfect. Mm-hmm. But good enough actually is good enough, especially when you have defined it so clearly for yourself on any level, professionally, personally. Good enough rules the world, by the way. I mean, I think that, that this is something that, again, we do a disservice to sellers not to teach them. But in the world that sellers operate, their customers, their buyers, aren't trying to make the best decision. They're trying to make a good enough decision. And this is this is not new. This has been researched. Somebody's won a Nobel Prize based on this research. Uh, Herbert Simon... It's what people do. They make the good enough decision. They spend enough time investigating until they find something that they find satisfies their requirements and is sufficient to help them meet their goals. And then it's like, I don't have more time. I'm going to move on. I'm going to make that decision and move on. And we need to do that in our personal lives as well. Oh, so true. I needed this conversation, um, <laughs> probably just <laughs> therapeutically. Uh, but I will I'll but I'll say... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> The last thing I'm going to say on the topic, I think, I think the last thing on the topic of sobriety is one thing I've really learned by putting down alcohol. And I don't think it has to be alcohol, right? It's for whatever that thing in your life that like you use to get out of feelings or thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I always like to share it that way. Like mine happens to be a big one, right? It's a, alcohol is a big one, but for some people in my life, it's video games. And for others Mm -hmm. in my life, it's like, you know, shopping, you know, even over exercising. I know people who do one too many spin class. I'm sorry, right. Peloton, one too many. In <laughs> any of those cases, yes, if we always go to and, someone, <laughs> and someone's saying, excuse me, but when I'm on my Peloton and and I've you know I've had one for a number of years, but and they're saying, Yay, you know, Jennifer, it's your two thousandth ride. I'm like, get off the bike. <laughs> Jennifer, go for a walk. Have a donut, Jennifer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just like. Anyway, um, sorry to interrupt. 
No, it's just it just reminds me so that the gift of sobriety and let's call sobriety anything where we put down something we do to escape thoughts and feelings. So mine is alcohol. Mm -hmm. Someone else's is a Peloton. Another person might be, um, you know, I mean, it's really could be anything for many sellers. I would argue it's work. Going to our email inbox, a checking on a calendar invite, this constant re-commitment um, to our technology over our mm-hmm. friends and family, like yep. anything yep. that we do to get out of thoughts and feelings, anxieties, worries. Um, when we stop doing that, when we stop going to the pacifier, I call it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, pinky, we get yeah. we get to really, really see how our brains work. Yep. And when I couldn't go to alcohol to relieve feelings of exhausting, anxiety, sadness, even happiness, right? Sometimes I get so happy about a big deal that closed, but it's a pilot. (gasps) The anxiety and the joy would be too much for me and I drink. But now that I can't do any of that, I actually just have to experience feelings. And what has happened over time is that my tolerance, I think this is resilience, right? My tolerance for emotional highs and lows is just way higher, Mm-hmm. So people will see me in crisis and say, you sure look calm sometimes. And I go, yeah, because I've actually been present for all my thoughts and feelings for like mm, almost five years now. So you, you, know? like the, you like this quote, that I, one that I've sort of lived a good chunk of my life by. Mm. Oops, hang on, let me, yes, I, I'm supposed to be looking in the camera, but I'm actually on, <laughs> on, my, uh, on my computer. And this is, I found... Early in my career, and it's like in the back of a Forbes magazine, I think. And I cut it out and put it on the refrigerator. And it's a quote from Paul Tillich, who was a famous American philosopher, theologian. And he said, The awareness of the ambiguity of one's highest achievements, as well as one's deepest failures, is a definite symptom of maturity. Oh, I love it. Yeah, for me, that's as much as I could sort of been a guide in my life is that yeah, I'm going to have great successes. I'm going to have great failures. I've, I've had you know, more than my share of both, um, you know, personally, professionally, and yeah, but what do they really mean, right? They're not, they're not a judgment on me. Um, and I just think it's, you know, what you're talking about there is so wise that, mm. yeah, navigate through this. It's incredible. It makes me think that actually the sales, pers- the sales rep that we should be looking for or that we should be celebrating and supporting may not always be like the hardest charging, perfectionistic, it's either a win or a loss, the best or the worst thing that happens. Mm-hmm. It's that resilient and even curious professional mm-hmm. who's thinking to themselves, what's the lesson here? Also remembering that even the best thing that happens in their career that quarter is probably going to change, right? And then there'll be a renewal. And like, you know, understanding the highs and lows and the, um, the impermanence of performance, like real acceptance of that, that things will be good than bad, or maybe they're just going to be what they are, I think mm-hmm. actually produces a level of clarity and maturity that, yeah, sales would feel different. We would write different emails to each other if we were really in that place. Um, I certainly wouldn't have done what I did as a rep, which is like send seven call, you know, call and then write a kind of psychologically manipulative text and then, <laughs> you know, send a gift and all of these tactics, right, to get what I wanted because it was good or yeah. it was bad. Well, yeah. the thing is, the people that are the the target of those things, for the most part, have a pretty clear understanding of what's happening. 
I think this is again the part that we do a disservice to sellers and and don't teach them is that it's you know where do you ever hear that you've got a responsive, aware, alert audience for what you're doing who's not fooled by most of it. So when we talk about this word authenticity, but we talk about connection as you did, which is so important, is yeah, I'm a huge believer that if we were to train sellers to be good at nothing but building connections. We could not train them on a lot of other crap that we do because that would get them so far in the journey. Oh, so far. Asking questions from curiosity alone, Mm -hmm. genuinely wanting to empathize with the prospect, understand Mm -hmm. a day in their shoes, understand, um, understand them. You know, I always think about personas. Like there's one marketing persona, for example. Don't get me started. Yeah. And and we sell, we sell to people, not personas. It's it's definitely dehumanizing. I've been a huge, you know, kind of contributor to that mythology over the years, especially with consulting on the sales and sales ops side. Mm-hmm. It's just a desire to be efficient and to be right. And that's more fear, right? I always mm-hmm. want to look like I have an answer and I always want to deliver that answer quickly. So yeah, I bucket people into groups and I make vast generalizations and I seek to be understood before understanding. But what's so amazing, Andy, is in the transition um, out of a pure sales role into a role where I'm deeply thinking about well-being, my own Mm -hmm. and others, Mm -hmm. it becomes nearly impossible to do it. You know, even today uh, with my co-founder, we were looking at all the stories, trying to categorize them into themes so that we could curate some of the take care experience. And it took hours And we actually are going to change it all again and again and again because it's so hard to quantify and to label people because we're so complex, so multifaceted. And that's part of how we respect each other's well-being, autonomy, and performance. We are all quite multidimensional. The very least we can do is start acting like it. Well, again, that runs right up against the way people think that sales should operate, right? I mean, the whole whole premise of... You know these predictable revenue models and so on is is yeah, how do we take the human variability out of the equation and try as you might it doesn't work you know what we see with with so many saAS companies is sure they may be growing, but the way they're doing it is so inefficient and ineffective, and that there's lots of better ways to, to accomplish it. But they're trying to do it by just making everything, I'll say transactional, but that's, that's maybe a little too, too superficial. But yes, is follow the process, act this way, say these things at this time, yada, 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 as opposed to, you know, things that, that yeah, I work on my new book and, <laughs> and I have in there is this phrase, is, yeah, one of the Things, best things you can do as a salesperson, which is one of the least favorite things to do, is ask a question you have no idea what the answer will be. Oh. And we've become so scripted that people are afraid of that. And not just scripted, but just the expectations, right? Did you ask this question? Uh, and I, I sort of harken back to Harvey McKay, who's, you know, Fabulous author has written many bestseller books. I think he's ninety years old now. Had him on the show a couple of years ago. But there's this thing called the McKay sixty six that he's popularized. Is that when 
his sellers connect with someone, and it's not a matter of saying this is a discovery, but over the course of building this connection, this relationship with the buyer, they want 66 pieces of information. Hmm. And a lot of them are just, you know, sort of categorizing the person, right? Are they like this? You know, are they like that? What do they like? What are the preferences for this? You know, have almost nothing to do with what are the requirements for our product and our service and so on. And reaching this level of understanding, because a lot of people look at that and say, oh, good, I get all this information. And it's like, no, it's not information. Yes, it, it is a collection of information, but the thing that makes it powerful is you spend time with it and understand the person. Then that becomes very powerful. Mm. So true. So true. So let me ask you about you were sort of a media star in the fall. Is big feature piece on you in the Boston Globe. Um, and there was this accompanying video was with it, of which you were the, in episode one, you were the star. And um, there's a great quote. Yeah, there's a lovely quote in there. And I just, Maybe it's our sort of parting, parting piece you can talk about this. is you say, the quote is, my life is a beautiful resistance. So, tell us what you mean by that. Oh, well, I have to credit my dear friend, Janae, for coining this phrase of beautiful resistance. Mm. Um, it's on a few levels. When I, when I say the word resistance alone, I hear a bit of a struggle. Uh, the desire to like rebel against or fight something. Mm-hmm. But when I add in the word beautiful, I imagine that whatever the thing I'm fighting or moving away from is something that truly does not help me. I'm moving mm-hmm. away from something that is ugly. So beautiful resistance for me is like all the actions I take personally and professionally um, that, that help me say goodbye to things like burnout, Right. Uh, intentional overwork, right. uh, making decisions to make others happy, but potentially hurt myself. Um, it's saying goodbye to doing doing work that doesn't matter or keeping people in my life who, who you know, shouldn't be. It, it's mm-hmm. a lot of those small daily actions um, that I think all of us take every day. We have a decision. We move towards the things we want or away from the things we don't want. And I do mm-hmm. my best to move away. Uh, it's it's a really exciting time. Take care is truly the first thing I've run to that feels a hundred percent in line with who I am as a salesperson, as a wellness person. Right. You know, right. and by wellness person, mean someone on the wellness journey. Let's be clear. Right. I had diet coke last night and some Cheetos. Like I'm on my journey, and and we don't know how far. Might be at the and, very closest and, starting line. And gummy bears. <laughs> No, I do not keep any gummy bears on hand, and we will do for all you. Yes, for all listeners, no gummy well, bears for Mercy Bell. I, I yeah, I, sh- I share that though. I was, I was at my daughter's house yesterday, and we we're talking, and I, I just sort of, I know she always has them around. I said, "Do you have a sour gummy around?" <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, "It's eleven o'clock in the morning, and you want a sour gummy?" I said, "Yeah, I just I need to have a sour gummy." Well, last thing I'll say that's potentially a little devil's advocate is what if having a sour gummy in the morning could be an act of wellness? It could be a beautiful resistance to the voice in our head that says we're not allowed to have something like that in the morning. You know, yeah. so it's it's so amazing to think about reimagining 
um, you know, I guess, no, I'll just leave it there. But I do think it's a real, really powerful statement for salespeople and just for human beings alike. What could we say no to today? That would right. be in for our wellness. What could we say yes to? Like those are both, both powerful. I, I, absolutely. Absolutely agree. hundred percent. All right. Mercy. Give people some more information about how they can sign up for Take Care. Sure. So Take Care celebrates the autonomy and expertise of every individual on their wellness journey. If you want to sign up for this 30-day experimental audio, choose your own adventure, um, you just head on over to www.takecare.com. The A in care is a four. It's so hard to say. <laughs> I know. Go, it is take care, but you're right. It's the number four. I know. Yes. Maybe I just try saying the www.takec4re.com. Right. All right. And is there a cost associated with it? Yes. The take care listening ticket is $25 for individuals. So for the cost of two movie tickets, you get 30 days of more than 60 audio stories. Um, for any teams who are interested, particularly teams that are dealing with burnout or stress, um, there are tickets available uh, that include a listening box filled with self-care and wellness goodies from our contributors delivered right to your doorstep. Uh, to find wow. info on the take care option for teams, uh, leaders can just head on over to our website and contact us for more details. Excellent. Very interesting. Now, yeah. just comment about the... I don't know where you go to see movies, but that 25 bucks is like a movie and a popcorn for one person. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, hold I mean, on, hold are, on, let me try that one again. Movie, let me try that again. For mo- the cost movies of are, one. <laughs> movies here, I mean, they're like 18 bucks. I mean, geez, at least. No, you're in California where like the taxes are insane and your governors have like their hairstyles are too good or whatever. Oh, well, by the way. Little what, gel takes care of everything. <laughs> Um, okay, so for the cost of a movie and a popcorn, I'm going to change that on the website. You're good. All right, all right. So, Mercy. Yes. A pleasure as always. And if people want to connect with you personally, best way to do that? The best way to connect with me personally is on LinkedIn, uh, Mercy Lee Bell. Um, I would love to talk with anyone, particularly on the subjects of sobriety, wellness, performance, and um, their own wellness journey. Always here to listen. Perfect. All right. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Mercy Bell, for sharing her stories and insight with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. Do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>